reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. And I'm Kat Arney. Now, I'm going to start our news this week with a story that shows that life-saving research doesn't have to involve complicated or expensive technology. It sometimes just needs a little thought and application, according to new research in this week's New England Journal of Medicine. Now, researchers funded by the U.S. National Institutes of Health and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have discovered that a short training course can help cut the rate of stillbirths by more than 30% in the developing world. Now, given that estimates suggest that there are 3 million stillbirths births worldwide each year and nearly four million infants die within a month of their birth that's a staggering difference for such a simple solution what actually the done, Kat? Well, the researchers were testing the effectiveness of a three-day training course for birth attendants or untrained midwives, which highlighted simple techniques for caring for newborns, uh, things like breastfeeding as well, keeping babies warm and dry, and looking for signs of serious health problems. But why has this been overlooked in the past? Well, this is the thing, is that there's a problem with delivering this kind of training. There's a lot of midwives in the developing world, so you have to actually try and get training out to them. Now, um, they did this by sending one healthcare worker from Argentina, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Guatemala, India, Pakistan and Zambia. They went over to the US to learn these special newborn care techniques and then they went home to train other midwives and healthcare workers in their area and they reached around 3,500 healthcare workers in rural communities. Now the researchers also taught the healthcare workers how to check infant health to diagnose whether a baby was stillborn or whether it maybe it could be made to breathe and to check for other conditions. And they also provided them with scales for weighing infants, for handheld pumps and masks to help fill babies' lungs with air, and also clean delivery kits to help prevent infection at birth. And then, obviously, they wanted to test if it worked, so that the scientists compared data on babies born before and then after the training had been given. Impressive numbers that they got to. What did they actually find when they did the analysis? Did it work? Well, overall, they studied 120,000 births, and they found that the rate of stillbirths dropped sharply. So there was around, uh, before the intervention, there was around 23 stillbirths per thousand deliveries, and that dropped down to just under 16. Now the scientists think this is because some of the babies wouldn't have taken a breath on their own when they were born and would have been considered to, to be stillborn but actually the birth attendants could recognise this and help the babies to start breathing with some very simple techniques and actually in many cases save its life. Now supporting this idea the researchers didn't find a difference in the number of babies who actually appeared to have died in the womb before they even got to birth suggesting that actually it is recognising when babies just haven't started breathing on their own and, uh, and intervening at the right time and it's a very simple intervention but giving the right training to the right people and spreading it out in this way, it really can help to save lives. Indeed, and, and certainly impressive numbers. Big reduction, so that's certainly something which we should bear in mind as a sign of how simple things can make a big difference. Now, sticking with things that could make a big difference, something which was only just unveiled this week at the AAAS meeting in San Diego, that's the American Association for the Advancement of Science, is a new discovery which could enable us to tackle one of the arguably most malignant aspects of having cancer, which is that the disease spreads. 
We're very good at treating primary cancers. So when a tumour starts somewhere, surgery and other interventions like radiotherapy are very good at dealing with the local initial disease. Very often, you can cure that aspect of it. But usually, by the time someone presents to a doctor, the tumour has already spread to other parts of the body. This is a process called metastasis. Keeping tabs on whether that has already happened, whether the therapies that patients are given have actually been effective, and then following people up to see whether their tumour is recurring is actually a very much a black box. It's very difficult. There are very few ways of doing that until now because there's a study by Rebecca Leary, who's a researcher at Johns Hopkins in America. What she and her colleagues have unveiled uh, is a new genetic technique that enables them to study the structure genetically of cancer cells and produce a genetic signature so that they can track a cancer through a person's body by just taking blood samples. So is this looking at DNA in the bloodstream from the tumour cells? How, how do you tell what's wrong with the tumour cell just from this DNA? You're right, it is looking in the bloodstream because cancer cells very often break down and die and they splurge out the DNA that they normally have in them into blood. The blood then goes round in the bloodstream and can be detected using genetic techniques. Cancer is a genetic disorder and what characterises cancer cells is that the genetic material in a cancer cell is very unstable. So very frequently, whole bits of chromosomes will break off of their normal chromosome and stick themselves onto another chromosome. And this puts segments of DNA next to other segments of DNA that they would never normally be next to. And what these researchers have done is to work out a way of very rapidly genomically sequencing through a tumour so they have the entire genetic repertoire of a tumour and they can see where these funny translocations, these movements of bits of DNA, have gone from one place to another and this gives a unique fingerprint for the particular cancer. The next step is to then just keep taking blood samples from the patient after they've had each of their interventions and see how the levels of DNA from the tumour in the bloodstream fall. If the levels fall to zero, that shows that probably all the cancer has been removed. If it doesn't, it's, it argues that there's still some traces of that original cancer in the bloodstream somewhere, and that argues you should do more therapy. Well, it sounds absolutely fantastic, um, because obviously it's a non-invasive way of monitoring whether a cancer's there or is gone. But isn't it going to be phenomenally expensive? I mean, genomic sequencing is, is still pretty costly. Indeed, it cost the Human Genome Project about half a billion pounds and about 10 to 15 years of effort to try to sequence a human genome. But technology since that time, 10 years ago or so, has moved on enormously quickly. And people are in a position now where they can do a complete human genome sequence for about $10,000 to $20,000, which means it's only about four or five times the price of doing a CT scan, which is the current gold standard way of diagnosing cancer and diagnosing cancer uh, in a recurrent state, in other words, has it come back? And the point is that a CT scan has a limit of sensitivity. You've got to have a lesion or some kind of tumour which is visible to a scanner. When you're doing DNA technology, you just need a molecule of DNA to make it detectable. So this is very, very ultra-sensitive, but it is a research tool at this stage. It's only been validated using laboratory samples of colon cancers and breast cancers in patients. And it's going to be another, obviously, few years yet before people begin to work out how to integrate this into the clinic. Exciting progress, though. And uh, another kind of technology that's still in its infancy, but again, very simple uh, compared to Chris's more complicated genome sequencing, is uh, one for our crafty listeners. Now, uh, I don't know, Chris, are you, are you into craft? Maybe your wife likes a bit of sewing, knitting, that kind of thing? Um Actually, I can knit, but not very well. And that's only because I was bored once and I got my grand to show me. She's brilliant. 
<laughs> I'm a big knitter, and if any of our crafty listeners are fond of whipping up a skirt or a shirt or something like that, um, the cotton thread that you're using could actually be used to make a lab on a chip, according to new research from scientists in Australia. They've used cotton thread and simple sewing needles to stitch together a lab on a chip that could one day be used for cheap diagnostic tests for medicine or other applications. And they've published their work this week in the journal Applied Materials and Interfaces. But chips normally involve things like silicon and metal, don't they? So how can you use something like thread for this? Well, these kind of chips are called microfluidic devices and they pull tiny amounts of liquid around their surface in a tightly controlled way. And you're right, they're normally made by etching channels into silicon or glass or metal, some kind of hard surface to make chips about the size of a postage stamp. But uh, the scientist called Wei Shen and his team, they figured out they could actually make a, a microfluidic chip just using cotton threads to wick liquid around surfaces instead. And how do they actually do this? How do they test it works? <laughs> this is, I love this stuff. This is great. The first challenge was to actually prepare the cotton thread. Now, natural cotton fibres are actually coated with wax, the natural wax from the plant. So first they had to use a special treatment called plasma treatment to strip the wax off. And then they stitched this treated cotton thread into paper in different patterns to make little microfluidic sensors that they could use to detect and measure different chemicals that, for example, are found in the urine of patients with certain illnesses. And how does that work? Well, they were testing, in this case, for nitrite ions and uric acid, both of which can be detected by chemicals that change colour. So they took some paper and they treated it with these detection chemicals before sewing the cotton thread into them. And then, you know, when you dip the end of the thread in urine or a, a solution of these ions, then it changes colour. Uh, it wicks the solution around the paper and changes colour. So effectively, you're making a paper and thread-based detection lab. Very nice. Uh, what's next for doing this? Are they actually going to try and will this out in the clinic? Well, this is at the moment very experimental. It's a fairly crude demonstration of the technique. But maybe with a bit more research, a bit more application, it could be possible to develop some very cheap and effective sensors for many different chemicals. They're simple, they're cheap to make, um, relatively unskilled people could make them. So it'd be ideal for applications in the developing world. You could sense contaminants in drinking water or soil or use them for very simple diagnostics for healthcare applications. So you could have tests out in the clinic in the field that, uh, that might be able to help diagnose illnesses. Which is another very important story. Thank you for that, Kat. Now, uh, something else that caught my eye this week, which was really quite surprising, is that for a long time, scientists have understood that cells work by having genes in them, and those genes can be turned on or turned off to make various chemicals in the cell, and those chemicals in the cell then do various jobs that contributes to the cell's metabolism. We understood that. But in more recent years, scientists have also found that genes have the equivalent of a dimmer switch. This is epigenetics. By adding chemical groups to the sides of various bits of DNA, you can affect how active individual genes are. Well, scientists pretty much thought that was it. But now a group of researchers have shown that there's another third dimension, if you like, of control of a cell's metabolism, which is that the proteins that those genes make can themselves be controlled in terms of their activity. There's a paper in Science this week. It's by Ximin Zhao and colleagues at Fudan University in Shanghai. And what they show is that the proteins in the cell that function as enzymes and do various important metabolic jobs, what can happen is that wherever there are lysine groups, one of the amino acid building blocks that make those proteins, the cell can add an acetyl group, a chain of two carbon atoms, onto those lysines, and this affects the behaviour 
of the protein. It can make the protein more or less active. So this gives the cell a whole different new way of controlling how active some of the metabolic processes are in the cell. And to do some simple experiments, what they did in liver cells was to incubate those cells in different amounts of glucose and demonstrate that in that changed environment, the amount of acetyl groups being added to these lysine residues changed dramatically, and alongside that, the level of activity of the enzymes changed dramatically. So this gives cells a whole new way to get programmed metabolically. So that's really fascinating that this is a whole new pathway, but do you think it could have applications in therapies, in sort of maybe metabolic disorders, how we can treat those? It may well do, yeah, because most of the time we're, we're looking at drugs that will basically affect the way in which cells behave as a fairly blunt instrument. But it might be that by controlling this process, as well as trying to control the activity of various genes and things, because some of the new drugs coming up for, for disorders like diabetes, for example, actually control the activity of whole clusters of genes in cells. It might be this is a new way of controlling the activity of various components in cells that are linked to disease processes. And it means we could make even better drugs that are more bespoke to certain conditions with fewer side effects. So certainly very interesting and something that people had previously completely overlooked. And it just sounds like it's making life more complicated when we're trying to understand how cells work. Thank you, Kat. Well, more exciting news now, because also this week, scientists have announced that they've discovered a way to use a secret known previously only to nature to solve a big problem in the third world, which is how do you keep viruses, and particularly live viruses that you're going to use as vaccines, alive despite a lack of refrigeration? Well, the secret has come from a plant called the resurrection plant, which is an incredible organism. It can withstand near total desiccation. You can dry it out for months on end, in some cases years, and then it springs back to life as soon as it touches water. I know this because I've played with it myself. Scientists have discovered how that plant does that, and they've now been able to borrow the same trick and apply it to viruses. Matt Cottingham joins us from the University of Oxford. Let's start with the plant first. How does it do this? Well, the key is that it has lots of treolose uh, inside its cells. And treolose is a, a common sugar, which is similar to sucrose, which is ordinary table sugar. Um, and when the sugar dries out, it forms a glass. And uh, a glass is a particular type of chemical entity, which is essentially a liquid that's so viscous that it's effectively a solid. And actually, the glass in your window um, is called glass because it's that type of chemical. And although it seems completely solid, it's actually chemically a liquid because the molecules are disordered. So it stabilises, presumably, the cells and the components of those cells in the plant so that when the plant dries out, the, the chemicals and the structures don't fall apart. So when you do add water, the sugar then breaks down again and everything comes back to life. That's right. Um, if, you, if you take all the water out of something, what would normally happen is you get crystals. And crystals um, have a very tight structure and they will actually disrupt the structure of the plant or in this case the vaccine um, which you want to preserve so by having lots of sugar which doesn't crystallize under those conditions but instead forms a glass that actually allows protection against desiccation so how have you stolen what the plant's doing and applied this to the vaccine technology world uh, well it's very simple we simply take a mixture of sucrose and trehalose um, and formulate the vaccine into that uh, and then dry it and what we've hit upon is a particular method of drying um, that actually enables the vaccine to retain its structure and its activity. Which viruses are you thinking of? 
because obviously that the, there are certain viruses that are pretty stable and you don't need to do special tricks to make sure that people can get infected with them. I'm thinking of common things like norovirus, which people catch on cruise liners. Not all viruses are as stable as that, though. That's right. So most viruses are quite stable, but they really need to remain wet. Um, so they're normally transmitted in droplets, say from a sneeze um, or, or via the fecal oral route, where you've probably got a tiny bit of moisture on your fingers. But in this case, if we want to be able to stabilize these, it's really crucial to have them dry. Because if they're dry, then the chemistry which would normally degrade them can't actually happen. So which viruses are you looking to use and how? So we've focused in this work on two viruses, um, adenovirus and a pox virus called modified vaccinovirus. And these are exciting because they're two viruses which may be used to form the platform for a new generation of vaccines against diseases like malaria and HIV and TB where there aren't any vaccines or where the current vaccines are no good. And what is the impediment or problem with using these agents in the third world at the moment? Um, well, the problem is that they're live viruses, so they're living organisms and um, they're very sensitive to heat. So all the live viral vaccines at the moment have to be kept in the fridge. So they're usually manufactured in Europe and then they're and shipped all over the world in refrigerated containers and they then have to be kept in the fridge at the destination. And if they do warm up, then they essentially have to be thrown away. I would presume then that the actual spend on keeping vaccines cold probably makes up a significant proportion of the total cost of the vaccine then? Yeah, it's about 20%, and that doesn't include wastage. Which is a huge amount, and obviously mm. totally beyond the realms of many countries to spend money or even to have the infrastructure to keep a vaccine cold. So presumably right. your platform would enable you to put viruses into these sugar glasses, they would therefore be stable at what sorts of temperatures for how long? Um, we've managed 45 degrees for six months. Which is pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah You presumably then would just take the vaccines out to the bush in the middle of nowhere and they would remain stable until someone had them administered. That's right, yeah. Do you think that the, the, the sugars would be safe in oh, yeah, they're, they're the body? Safe. Mm. How do we know that? Um, they, they are actually already used in the current vaccines, some of the current vaccines. Um, so it's a combination of these sugars together with the new method of actually performing the drying that has enabled us to do what we've done. Any idea when you'll be able to wheel this out and when people will begin to see the, the benefit of this? Yeah, we're thinking possibly as early as five years, maybe more like ten, because we've done this very much on a laboratory scale. So now we have to actually do it according to good clinical manufacturing practice which is a set of legislations which we need to adhere to in order to make a product that can actually be used in humans. Um, and that's being done by our commercial partners, Nova Laboratories in Leicester. All right, well, we wish you luck with it, and thank you very much for joining us, Matt, and well. telling us about your work. That was uh, Matt Cottingham. He's at the University of Oxford, and he and his colleagues have published a paper. It's in Science Translational Medicine this week, in which they outline how these new sugar-based glasses can be used to make viruses survive intact in very otherwise hostile conditions. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.